Promise No Promises The Tale and the Tongue Episode 19 Moving in Migrant Rhythms The podcast Promise No Promises unfolds a further chapter The Tale and the Tongue this series of episodes arises from conversations between curator and writer Sonia Fernandez-Pan and guests from different storytelling practices and world-making experiences. For a conversation to take place, it is sufficient when two people start talking to each other. However, conversations are never happening just between two people. A conversation holds many bodies, places, stories and experiences. It develops languages and creates interpersonal and temporary dialects. Sharing is also a way of collecting seemingly individual circumstances. Our bodies host many narratives, speaking borrowed words, and making stories an important part of who we become. Stories travel between bodies, welling in them. Always in motion, they have no end. Words make worlds in which reality and its fictions travel through the tongue to become tales. Moving in Migrant Rhythms is episode 19, which follows a conversation with artist and loud thinker Maya Saravia. The meetings between Maya and I have become more frequent since October last year. The social media algorithm criticism of the violent situation in Berlin, pro-Palestinian demonstrations and anti-censorship events have brought us closer. We had met before, but always depending on chance. We lacked the intimacy of talking to each other without others around. I felt in Maya a kind of energetic thinking and critical sensitivity that is contagious to many people I know, including myself. It is the energy of those who dare to speak out without being afraid of what others might think, of those who are not afraid of disagreement, passionate debate, or controversial opinions. Wild forms are not as abundant in art as its narratives promise. Politeness keeps irreverence quiet. Good manners often prevent relevant conversation to happen. They are an excuse, also an alibi, for some not to say what others do not want to hear. Form works in favor of meanings, but also against them. When we're asked to say things differently, we're implicitly being asked not to say what we say. In our conversations, the migrant experience is very present. Maya has lived in different cities since she left Guatemala, including Madrid, Lisbon, and Berlin. Even if we are the same person, our bodies do not move in the same way in all places and cultures, nor are they read in the same way. Part of the insights Maya and I share have a lot to do with feeling and thinking with other rhythms. These rhythms are different from those of the city we live in, but they are part of it all the same, and they are also produced by it. It is true that an emotional rhythm prevails in Berlin, just as the techno rhythm prevails in its clubs. Sometimes I wonder if the suspended, predictable tempo of the city has something to do with techno. Its rhythm also echoes in the fronts of anonymous buildings. Anonymity is perhaps one of Berlin's most outstanding qualities. 
As Maya says, you don't come here to shine, but to go unnoticed, to enjoy being one of many. At least in the case of those who do not look for success and fame. Some of us look for togetherness among the nameless bodies dancing with us. Yet beyond personal preferences, places have not one, but several editorial lines. That places and people have an editorial line is something I would learn from Matilda Migo. She also challenges the rational weather, speaking in verses and gestures. Berlin is a city where it is easy to meet again after a couple of encounters. Especially if we don't go to the same bars, the same openings or events, or if we don't sweat on the same dance floor. I find it ironic that Maya and I haven't met dancing in all these years. It probably has to do with the fact that our bodies have moved in different rhythms, scenes and maybe hours. My experience being much more predictable than hers. One of the music genres that Maya often talks to me about is reggaeton. I totally agree with her that you can't dislike it. The reggaeton rhythms are dangerously catchy. They keep going even when the song is over. It is one of those music rhythms whose will is stronger than ours. Because we can like something quite a lot, even when we say out loud that we don't like it. This is not so much a matter of lying as of abiding by certain intellectual conventions. For example, the convention that reading certain books implies liking certain music. However, this has changed a lot in recent years. The syncretism that Maya Saravia speaks of in many of her projects is also part of personal experiences. In the statement of one of her projects, she refers to reggaeton as a syncretic event. It is a volcano erupting in the world, driven by the flows of capital, labor, many displacements and musical traditions. It is an apologetically joyful and sexual music. It is not only capable of moving bodies, but also belief systems, making us hum lyrics we might not agree with. Following Maya's words, in music nothing is literal and meaning is diffuse. In her project, The Theory of the Ghost, Volume 2, she wonders about a critical joy. Can this joy make us stronger? Can it make us friends? In one of Maya's pieces, a neon sign glows and says migrant melancholy. I wonder if there is also a migrant joy, and whether it is a joy of detachment or whether it is the joy of being native elsewhere. I wouldn't say that Maya makes pieces but places. Making things happen is usually the attitude of people who see art as a way and not so much as a destination. Perhaps for this reason, some of us consider changing direction. Quitting art, but keeping artistic impulses in daily life. In her project Las Golondrinas, Maya made a bar happen. She was inspired by the Latin American bars in Madrid that she frequented years ago. Working class environments that have little to do with the bars of Berlin. Despite my skepticism, Maya says it is possible to turn a white cube into a bar to make people forget for a brief moment about their performance as an audience, losing composure to gain experiences. Although we didn't get to talk about it, another of her projects, El Ovido, also starts in a bar, this time in Guatemala. 
She says it is a bar that could be anywhere in the world. A place where the light-hearted life of bars mixes with the violence of the news. A place that is far away from the battle zone but has war as background music. At the present moment, with the ongoing massacre in Gaza, any word is an understatement. Violence always makes words fall short. In Berlin, where some of us have joined the strike against Germany, it is hard not to think of something else. It is an international strike of artists, but it would be more effective if it were also a strike of audiences. But it is also true that the situation has made us meet each other and moving together in migrant rhythms and dissident alliances. This conversation with Maya Saravia took place in January 2024. She was at her home and wedding, and I was at mine in Neukölln, both neighborhoods with a large Arab and Muslim community. When we started recording, Maya made a gesture similar to that of so many virgins in paintings. She also studied art history, a tale where only the West exists or matters. I took a photo of her because jokes are always serious. Towards the end of the recording, we took another photo, this time with a kafia that a stranger gave her in the street. Between the two images, we said a lot of things, and yet we left a lot unsaid. Without a recorder, we met in Koti right after. The way we talk can be similar to the way we walk. Some of us like to get lost, especially with friends. It is not about the destination or following a course, but about how one thing leads to another. To return to Maya's words, it is not only important to move, but to create conditions for movement. Perhaps that is the most magical thing about conversations, that they move us without intending to. Dancing for me, I think since I was a very young kid, was super important. It was something that I never could do, but I always wished I could do. My mother, she was not a ballet dancer, but she did study ballet when she was a kid. And the reason for this is that my grandfather was a painter. He was also an art teacher. And so he was very involved in the arts and my mother liked ballet, but she also had like a very shy personality, I think. She would take all the frustrations of this learning ballet very hardly. It would hurt her that she wouldn't be able to do certain movements. So she wouldn't advance in her learning. But my grandfather made some drawings of her after her ballet class. And I grew up with these images of my mother hanged up, these drawings, these portraits of her in her like black leopard, this black outfit that the ballet kids wear. It was something that I always wish I could have done. I remember asking my parents to send me to dance classes, but my family didn't really have the economic possibility to be sending us to 
classes that were not school, which was already a problem. And I do think that if I would have had like a special talent, they would have thought, oh, you know, how special she can do these dances. Maybe they would have made an effort, but I didn't have a talent. I never had the talent. And so I didn't have the discipline. And I think my parents just read this as another whim, a childish whim that would go away. But it never went away. My relationship to dance has been always one of something that I really loved and wish I could do, but never could do it myself. So I'm just basically a huge fanger. And I could look at people dancing almost obsessively. When I find people that have like something special in their dance, whatever dance this is, I can just stare at them. When you look at things for too long, you start feeling weird about yourself. This has happened to me as well. Then I started later developing certain artworks where I could like fit this sort of obsession. And this is a very long story also, which is related to dance. It has to do with uh, a trip I took to London. And this is a very long story that's very personal. But I was in London and I was having a very bad time. And I went to the British Museum because I was trying to find an obsidian glass, like a mirror. That was very important. I never found it. I went to the room where this glass was supposedly on display. I never found it, but I found all these children that go around the museums in London, you know, how they take school kids and they have big groups and they look at the exhibitions. And these kids have just such great education that you had this, I don't know, maybe third grade, this 12 year olds. They were speaking to their professor and their professor was asking them questions regarding a Mayan, how you call them, an Estela. This big Mayan stone with these engravings on it. I think it's called an Estel. I don't know, Estela. The professor was asking the children, so what is happening in this scene? And these children would be lifting their hands, answering to their professor, like, that's the king. And he's speaking because he has this ball near to his mouth. And this is what happens, right? And they knew how to count the numbers. I was amazed, but also very jealous. I had this very strange feeling about it. I was kind of starting to hate these kids because they had access to this information. I didn't. I'm very ignorant. I mean, for much love that I can have and interest in things that I can read on my own, I never had proper education regarding Mayan art. And so I was very upset after leaving the British Museum. This feeling didn't leave me. And I left London two days after that. When I went back to Madrid, I was with my best friend. At the time, we were like brother and sister, my friend Roberto. We came about some mushrooms and I had like such a horrible vibe from London. I didn't like it. It felt a lot of violence in the city. And so we took these mushrooms. At the time, he was living in a, in a squat, a very amazing place called Espacio Naranjo in Madrid, where I also had lived before. And his room was quite small, but we were taking these mushrooms. They were very good. And in the trip, I started speaking to these Mayans. Who are the Mayans from the stone? They were in the trip and they started explaining to me 
that I shouldn't be angry, that there is no line, you know, that you can always come and you can always talk to us. And I remember just walking and walking and dancing a lot in this trip. I remember them telling me that I had this dance that I had to understand it. Like it's more about understanding what they are doing in this depiction. Because when you look at these depictions, they always have these beautiful movements. Their hands are always expressing something and they're always performing a sort of dance. I understood through this mushroom trip that what actually I had to do was create the conditions for this dance. Not understanding a literal description of whatever, it's not about this academic understanding of what this rock might mean. That's kind of less important than to create the conditions for these movements to reappear. This feeling just stood with me for a long time. I think this was one of the most important trips I've had in my life. Then I decided that I just needed to like refocus everything into finding these movements. The thing about these movements is that they come and go. The beauty of these movements is that they can never be fully... You cannot trap them. The movement is just a gesture. As you said before, it's an accent. And each person has a different accent, right? And it's just every individual has its own penchant, its own specificity of their own movements and what comes with them. But these things then mean something because they're a language that people can understand even if you're not speaking. And this is one of the most beautiful things I found with dance. Even if clearly I'm not a performer and I don't do the dance when I look at dancers, how all this intelligence that is just transmitting through the body, it just exists. This is also one of my big, let's say, frustrations, maybe. I don't know if that's the correct word. It's like looking at a language that you cannot properly speak, but somehow understanding how others speak it. It's been the case that I start talking to these dancers in the street or whatever, and I look at how amazing they are. And because dancers always want to share their dance, they pull you in and then you are there stuck, not being able to follow their movements because it's not visual and it's not logical. It's just that your body should respond. And it's this exact moment when your body just sometimes stays stuck because you cannot truly really follow. This is the moment of sadness for me. try to be in touch with dance to make spaces where these dances can arise and this is why I always thought about this idea of this ghost that comes it's not about a specific dance but the fact that you are always calling something else when you are moving when you are dancing there is something else that arises between the bodies and between these connections even people who dance alone I dance a lot by myself even to make an art show, I realized that every time I had to think of an installation or a piece when I was invited, I have to dance this space to understand what is it that it needs. I generally manipulate my way into getting the keys and being alone at night at a place and spend enough time in the space and dance around it. These dances, this moving around is what makes me understand what is the temperature of the place, what is the rhythm 
often what is it that it needs and that's how things start making sense for me and so I need to dance a lot in order for ideas to take shape and for things to make sense I think a lot moving hopefully dancing sometimes working but <laughs> Everything you said just fits into the same thing because if you are dancing and you quickly become extremely sensitive of the energy because you are eating an energy from outside but you are also like letting it pass through you and you are being very open to this energy we cannot deny that dancing is all about becoming this type of tunnel vessel what is the right word but you are definitely letting something pass through you like your body is becoming this channel And one of my, let's say, projects that I have not yet made, <laughs> I wanted to work with this specific group of dancers from Guatemala who make very amazing research about ancestral dance. They are cachiquel. They basically know that these types of dances that would have been performed before the colonization, a lot of them disappeared. And so what they do is that they try to research through many ways how these dances were performed, what they implied. A big part of this research is very spiritual because they have to ask permission from the elders, but then also they need to call on a spirit and then ask the spirit, how was this performed? And then if the spirit agrees, then maybe they can open and dance it. It's also anthropological research. They have many ways, methodologies, but this spiritual part is super important because you cannot dance if there is not a mutual agreement with the spirit. I just find them so amazing. I always dream of inviting them to do something. I hope one day I can. A lot of times music transcends everything but that doesn't mean it heals people from any type of prejudice. Reggaeton right now is the king of music. Everything is reggaeton because reggaeton can swallow up everything. And people love it and it's impossible not to like it even if you hate it. Reggaeton doesn't fight with anyone. It welcomes everyone, even people who hates it. But what doesn't change is the fact that even in Latin America, people are still super classist. It doesn't change racism, it doesn't kill people from being classist, it doesn't open opportunities for anyone. Maybe only if you are like a really good artist and then you can climb up the social ladder. I mean, if you make money, but that doesn't even mean you're going to stop being looked at as rabble because that's what you are in the eyes of the bourgeoisie, let's say. I'm very critical of this, like, yes, music can build bridges, but it can also sometimes even be very reactionary especially this idea of joy. I think it's all connected, right, about how this music dances. This music moves with this idea of Atlas, which I think it's really interesting that you asked me whether this is a colonial construct. 
for sure. I mean, the first idea that you get when you hear Atlas is one of these books with all the maps, right? Actually, I should confess the reason why this project was called Guatemalan Dance Atlas is because I copied it from a beautiful book. It's one of my favorite books. I have it here since you asked. It's called the Atlas Danzario de Guatemala. This work was a big research that was conducted, I think it's from the University of San Carlos, the University of Guatemala. This man, Carlos René García Escobar, he's the main researcher, and the book is very humble, but it's done with so much love. And it's really an atlas, literally, of all the dances that exist in Guatemala. And it's full of like the floor patterns, the music, how it's performed. Then you have the different dances, what they mean, what's the outfits that they wear, because the outfits are super important. What's the reason for these dances? It's a huge research. And there's some dances, like the dance of the snake. The research team never actually got to see, but they talk about it. When I was researching dance and finding this, because I actually wanted to find more information on the Torito, that is my obsession with the fireworks, I ended up finding this book. Guatemala is a country of migrants. I mean, we are basically a diaspora country because it's such a disaster. And, you know, the whole colonial process means kicking people out of their land. So you have communities that are just disappearing entirely. This book is from 1996. Many of these dances, I don't know if they exist anymore. If the community who performed them still performs them or if they're still there. When I started this idea of the Guatemalan dance atlas, this imitation of mine was mostly a proposition of them what could be the new dances that could arise from these diasporic communities. The only one I've actually done is the dance of the swallow or baile de la golondrina. The golondrina, this little bird is not an important bird in the Mayan cosmogony. It doesn't have a dance. It's just a common bird. Somehow for me, it's a bird that I love because it's so small. It's so common. It's also attached to a cultural... Well, there is this famous song called uh, Las Golondrinas, you know, which you get sung when you are leaving. People sing it when somebody dies and when somebody leaves. This is very similar when you are saying goodbye to a family member who is a migrant, who decided to do this route of migration. Then you sing the Golondrinas, but you also sing it when somebody passed away and you sing it at a cemetery. This Golondrinas... Uh, a goodbye song, but it's always about this dreaming of return. Somehow we'll meet again, right? Because the swallows always come back. And so I was very interested in this idea. Also how these tiny, tiny birds just fly kilometers. Like they fly all over the globe eating mosquitoes. They cover such great distances. They're everywhere. Africa, Russia, Central America, North America, everywhere. They're the most common bird. And so I thought my proposition is to start adding animals and uh, dances that could sort of reflect the diasporic reality of this Guatemalan dance atlas that is no longer only performed in the Guatemalan territory. In this book, you can find the exact places where these dances are performed, but that now they would be performed anywhere in Mexico, in the US, where most migrants are or in Europe, anywhere, then you have Guatemalans spread around the globe.
about this diasporic nature. I don't know if it's something that people take pride in or is starting to take pride in now because my family on my father's side, half of them moved to the US. I mean, they didn't even have documents for a long time and, you know, classic Latino immigrants who went there and made a living. The feeling that I got was that people were not necessarily proud of this, that they were like very happy to have dollars because every time they would come back to Guatemala, they would bring us a lot of presents and chocolate and a lot of things that in Guatemala didn't exist at the time. Now, basically, you can buy anything anywhere because the world is all the same. There is no difference. Everybody has a Snickers, chocolate and McDonald's and Coca-Cola. But back then it wasn't the case. Like having these Kisses chocolates from Hershey's was like such a big deal. Just glittery stuff, plastic stuff. We didn't have that. It wasn't common. So my aunt would come back with these mega boxes full of presents. That would be for us like she made it because she's super rich. In reality, she wasn't rich. She was like struggling a lot. She was working so hard, but it was a big deal for her to come back to Guatemala with all the presents, kind of like a Santa Claus for us. This relation has been lost as well because I think scarcity is not so dissimilar anymore. Like the US has become also so expensive and you know all the struggle that people go in there, you know, just to pay medical bills. My same aunt would come back to Guatemala to get medical treatment that she couldn't afford in the US. All of the sudden this scarcity is global as well. This idea of the global north is slowly dissolving. But at the same time, migrant populations have grown so much that I feel what is missing. I don't know if this is growing. It's a a culture of migration itself, like a shared migrant culture and a sort of pride in this immigration, in this lack of nationality, in this state. It's not nationalistic, but it kind of can play, enjoy this sort of not being anywhere. In Spain, it's completely different than in Germany, for sure. But this is a way that reflects more the, let's say, guest culture, because Spain is anyway very chaotic, like it's very disorganized. <laughs> That's the truth. And so when Latinos come in, they just do whatever they want, in a sense. Like, it's not easy, but I think it's far easier to improvise in Spain. When I was living there, I came because I fell in love and I ended up living in Madrid. And then I ended up homeless and without any documents. So I had this moment of great realization of what it means not to exist in a system because I didn't exist as a citizen in Spain. If I would have left and taken a plane in the level of institutions, nobody would have noticed that I was missing. And I didn't have like a very clear right to work. I didn't have credit. I didn't have to pay taxes on the other hand. I didn't have a right to vote. I've only voted once in my life because I voted when I was very young in Guatemala, then I left. Then in Spain, I couldn't vote. And in Guatemala, to vote, you have to be present there. End of the day, this idea of like the citizen in this democracy, that what is demanded of you, like you have to vote. If you don't vote, you're like the worst person. And you're like, I don't have the right to vote. I don't have papers. I don't have money to travel to Guatemala to vote for a narco. These ideas of citizenship really get 
destroyed. And I think this is what happens in the immigrant's mind is that you become very creative into ways of surviving. I think this has a lot to do with why so many musics have been born out of migrant communities because they have found each other in these immigrant spaces. You are not really a citizen in the country that you are in because you're always in the middle of becoming in maybe gaining some rights, but maybe also getting expelled. So you never really know if you're going to be welcomed in this country really. And yet the group that you can sort of forge is maybe going through the same. So you create this third space. You know, in this third space, everything that you miss from your homeland starts becoming extremely important and present, even if you know you cannot come back. You are like in a bit of a limbo, but this limbo starts becoming extremely creative. I remember my years in Madrid were some of the most intense years of my life. My friendships, my loves, everything was so important and it basically saved my life because, you know, I was undocumented. I used to get these jobs that I didn't have a contract. Sometimes I would get paid, sometimes not. Sometimes I had to like fight. It gets you in these positions that people who just are living in the place they were born don't have to deal with. You just have a paper. If you are born in this country and you live here, you're a citizen, you work, you perform your duties, you pay your taxes, whatever. But when you're not, that really destroys the whole notion of this organization of the nation state somehow. And you have all these communities that are in this transition because many immigrants, some of them are very organized and they quickly find a way to get papers and get things in order for themselves. But a lot of times they keep welcoming family members that are just like very loose on papers and they just keep like working, let's say, illegally. I don't want this information to be like a problem that later the police finds like, oh, networks of illegal people working, but people need to make a living. And this is when these interesting businesses happen. You have these women selling a food on little baby carts, the baby trolleys. Sometimes there was this mega market that would be, I think in Casa de Campo, it was a bunch of Ecuadorians who would come and play volleyball. And then they would also have like barber shops that they would just hang a mirror in a tree and do the haircuts there. Women would sell these sandwiches that were very popular and they would carry them in trolleys. Of course, they didn't have documents or maybe they did, but they just didn't find a job in Spain or they just wanted to make some extra cash. But it created like these amazing ways and amazing places of encounter where everybody sort of protects one another. Even the customers arrive, they know they have to protect the scheme. That's pretty great. And I think it's incredible also for music. When I spent time in Lisbon, I found out that Kuduro, many musics have been born out of this immigration of people who are like, they're there. living in Guatemala, I wouldn't say I was a big fan of reggaeton because it's not something that you choose. It's just present everywhere. Since I was a kid, when it became a big thing and you would dance at it, mothers didn't like it, didn't like the reggaeton, but you couldn't really escape it. And so they would play it at quinceañera parties. And also we used to do these street parties in my neighborhood. 
all the families would gather money and you would hire a, a mobile disco. These DJs would bring all this reggaeton music that maybe wouldn't play in the radio, but the DJs had their networks and so they brought them. And so you would dance to El General and all this music that just came in the 90s. You couldn't avoid it. And of course, at first El General, the parents considered it vulgar, but they kind of liked it. But then the music started getting more and more raw. You have El Chombo just singing Dame Tu Cosita, and it was just too much. The schools tried to ban it because they would play reggaeton in the school parties as well. I remember being at school when the reggaeton started playing, everybody started to perrear. And then I remember one of the teachers just running like crazy to the DJ saying, take that music off. They conducted classes saying you cannot dance to this music. They're a very Catholic country, but the damage was done. Reggaeton came to stay. And so you go in the street, the stores have music blasting. It's this cacophony of Guatemala City that each store would have its own mega sound system and they would all be blasting different reggaeton tracks. But then you just have like this major sound in the city that is just like of different songs coming together. The bosses in Guatemala were insane. They have changed now. It's not the same. But uh, I grew up taking the number three, the bus three to Jocoteles. This bus was like a club. During daytime, they only had the music, but you know, around six o'clock, they would just start all the lights. And it was like a moving nightclub. You have all these lights and these effects and everything is full of stickers and they playing this reggaeton. You're coming back from work. Maybe you're tired and you're listening to it. So I wouldn't say I was like a fan of reggaeton, but it was definitely a music that made me, even if when I was living in Guatemala, I kind of hated it because I couldn't really escape it. But it's a lie that I hated it because at parties I did dance it. And of course I knew all the songs and I knew the gossip of the singers and everything. But it wasn't like I had this big speech around reggaeton, you know? I also thought like people should be more quiet. And it wasn't until I moved to Europe, to Spain in specific, that I started really missing the sound of it and the texture of it and the dancing. And that's when I started becoming myself very annoying into always wanting to listen to reggaeton. It's like my body really missed it. I see it kind of being a bit stupid now, but when I was in Spain, I was in uh, university. I had this really cool teacher, Jordi. I don't remember now his last name, but he was a really cool teacher. And he made us read Spinoza. His classes were a blast. And the homework with him was to write like a minor thesis, an essay, uh, whatever topic. And I said, I want to write my essay about reggaeton and Spinoza. He really liked it, the idea. It was not so good. I didn't really achieve what I wanted with that essay. Like, I was never so good in uh, writing, maybe. I don't know. I didn't know where I wanted to get. But he told me I was relying too much on historical facts because I was just telling how it was born. I wasn't really getting into, like, a philosophical argument with it. (laughs) Maybe I don't need to do that because reggaeton, you only need to dance. Even the styles are super queer. This is the thing about Dominican bars in Madrid, because Dominican men, Caribbean men in general, they have a relationship with beauty that maybe people in the it's do not have. 
you know? I remember being in the Dominican Republic, there's like hair salons everywhere and nail salons, so you smell it in the street when you are walking. And men, they go to the salon almost every day. And when you go to the Dominican bar, like the types that exist in Madrid, you can be like at the most heterosexual place and at the queerest place at the same time. These things, they talk to one another somehow. This is why I don't believe in this safe space thing, this discourse about around safe spaces. I don't believe this is real. None of these bars were safe, for sure. Like sometimes people would fight around. There were fights with knives and everything sometimes. My favorite bars was called Bar El Aguila. It doesn't exist anymore. I think it closed uh, during COVID. It was such a beautiful bar and you'd come in and it's just like the craziest place on earth. And the Dominican men, of course, have such a presence because they are so beautiful. Their hairstyles, the way they present themselves is so manicured. They have this pride in their beauty, in all the effort that they put in looking beautiful in the club. Also, like as a woman, maybe myself and many other women who were coming to the clubs, we didn't make such an effort to look that nice. So there is this exchange of coqueteria. You come in and they come talk to you and there's like a difference. Like it's not the same gender notions that you would have, let's say, in other spaces that men are very dry and women are expected to look their best. It's not the case. You know, I had this thinking of like, what is being part of a culture and what it is, what is culture in Germany? I was thinking in the shower the other day, for Germans, maybe culture is more about knowing things, you know, if you can explain, and I was thinking in the context of an artwork of a friend of mine, I wrote the text for his work and I read a lot about the Mayan calendar to explain the reason why he made this. When you explain the functioning of the Mayan calendar, what it means, why it's done this way, what's the cycles, people look at you like, you know so much, you are very cultured because you research this information and now you can explain it. But if you say, we are going to burn these things today, we're going to make this altar and we're going to ask for things today, because right now is the moment to do it for this and this reason, they will look at you like a superstitious idiot. Because you actually participate in a culture and you don't just look at it as a phenomenon from the outside. I think this goes to everything. It goes to dance, it goes to art. When I made one of my projects here in Berlin, it's really funny because I made a bar with a reggaeton. Of course, then the curators, in order to explain, I think they themselves didn't really understand what was going to happen. So they said it's a performance by Maya Sarabia that starts at nine and nobody knew really. So I made the whole setup and at nine I turned up the music, basically. And people quickly found a way to the room. The room was a bit separated from the rest of the exhibition. The exhibition was a normal exhibition. People were being very proper and polite with good works hanged in the wall. And then this noise came and People flood the space in like the matter of minutes. The room, my room with my work was full because the reggaeton was on and I was giving free beer, <laughs> which was a whole fight to be able to give free beer to people in Berlin because people here don't give things for free. 
I wanted to get people drunk, right? So when they found this place, everybody was like going crazy. When you have a bar and you make this type of scene, you don't need to explain people what's going to happen or what they're going to do. It's like they just quickly interact with it. Everybody just started having fun and screaming and misbehaving and drinking and talking amongst one another and dancing. After a while, it was interesting how the public started getting segregated. So you had all these Latinos who just wanted more and more and more music and screaming and going crazy. And the Germans quickly detaching from the situation, observing from outside, being like such an interesting phenomenon. It's an interesting artwork. It's an interesting piece of research on human interaction. But they're not dancing, you know, they're not getting down. Going back to this bar that I made in that same place, part of the bar is that there's like a little film that has movies, like bits of news. It has different types of situations. And some of the situations were scenes from a party in Guatemala. I know the DJ who organizes these parties, dance hall. To me, it was such an amazing thing to find the videos. They started doing like very nice recordings of the parties and then doing the videos, putting them on YouTube. You see these girls dancing, doing this amazing dance hall dances. And I was so mesmerized by it because Guatemala is not at all Caribbean in the sense that Caribbean people are. Guatemala is a small country that is surrounded by mountains. And we are like a mountain. We are very shy people. We're very quiet. Guatemala is super conservative and people have a very complex relationship to their bodies for many reasons. I've always thought that we are the children of counterinsurgency because of all this very long period of war. We are talking about 500 years of colonization that divides people and creates these screens around the people, around the indigenous people that punishes the ways in which they would otherwise interact. And the mestizos that come out of that. We are also extremely conservative. And during the time of the war, there was this process of identifying everyone, of course, and creating these techniques of fear in which you would always be suspicious just for existing. Walking in a street at night would make you a suspicious person. So people are always trying to find a justification for being for being outside, for being in the street, for speaking to a person, it always must be justified because the techniques of terror that were applied in Guatemala were so brutal that people internalized this for generations. When you look at young people today, I think it's really a struggle against that because we internalized this fear and it creates such a distance between each of us, this distrust this issue that you never know who you're talking to, the fact that during the Cold War, well, we had a civil war. It's never clear how to call it. It was a genocide, and it was a genocide against the indigenous people and against the left-wing people. It was especially hard on the students. Like you had moments in the 80s where pickup trucks would drive inside the university and just shoot at students, many martyrs from that time. There would also be these deep betrayals between young people, between people snitching, this is how they destroyed the student movement, just through betrayal of one another and this very difficult way to create trust. I have such a hard time every time I come back to Guatemala because I would say I'm very friendly, I'm very talkative, but in Guatemala this is not... Uh, you generally have to be very careful and you have to be very quiet 
and you cannot just be expressing opinions because people are generally afraid and they would feel very uncomfortable having somebody speaking too loud next to them. And this translates to dance as well. When I research these dances that happen in Guatemala, they're quite structured and there is a reason. They're very repetitive. They last for hours, these traditional dances. But then when I think about my experience dancing in parties, in quinceañera parties, this type of thing, it is of course a social dance. Maybe people have more this freedom to do more clownish things and doing funny things in the parties, but it's still sort of constrained within a very conservative society. So this is what reggaeton changed because it gave people this possibility of being very sexual, even in a way which was allowed within a very conservative society. But also it was not completely embodied, but now that I see the young girls that I admire so much doing dance hall in Guatemala and just having this amazing relationship with themselves and in the public space. I just find it like such a strong proposition, you know, such a strong gesture. You cannot imagine what it is to be a woman in Guatemala, in Guatemala City, and just wearing a uniform from school is just like you have all this harassment and men always pushing you out of public spaces. So then when I look at videos of these girls wearing tiny shorts or some type of funny outfit and just twerking in the street, that to me is something that never happened when I was young, ever. So I got super excited. This is such a strong thing. When I presented this video here in Berlin, you know, Berlin, Germany, a city where it's nudity is normal. And when you can go to any club and look at any type of sexual practice that is very in the open, when I presented this video, I have these comments by some of the workers of the gallery and people, Germans who came and some German women, uh, mostly, who would complain about the work and would say that it's extremely vulgar, that it's not feminist at all, that it sets women back because they are so sexualized. How are you going to get into this debate? Because I'm not making this to be feminist. I'm making this to talk about freedom and to talk about existing and presence, presence in a space, gaining strength in a space. I did have a debate with one of these women who told me that because I got word of people complaining, but then these women really addressed me and said, I don't think this is feminist at all. I think it's wrong. I explained to her like this is very strong gesture and I kind of tried to make her understand why this was so important in a country like Guatemala and why I was so touched by it. And then she understood it and then she changed her chip and said, oh, I understand Then this is a good thing. So I accept it as then a good thing. Then it's morally okay to have these women shaking us, which I find morally reprehensible, but since you are oppressed and now I can put a political discourse around this being against oppression, now I accept it. Now it's okay. You know what's the most radical thing in Berlin? Loving and showing tenderness, hugging a person, telling them that you care about them. And a lot of times I've had this situation with Germans. When you behave this way, you know how awkward they feel because they don't know how to react. To me, that's very strange. I don't know if I will ever bridge this. very sad I will never fully understand because I need love <laughs> I think we all do 
Maybe I'm too dry for Latin America, but I'm definitely too Latina for Germany because I cannot adhere to these forms. I tried once I had like this kind of boyfriend. I don't know if I should call it that. And I was so at first amazed by him, by how everything he did, he did it so perfectly well. He played the piano, he cooked perfectly. He would invite to a dinner and serve the dinner. Like everything had to be a plan. But then everything that was spontaneous to him was maybe I'm crossing his personal space. So I realized that there wasn't going to be a space for friendship. And that to me then is impossible because I personally don't really want to have necessarily a boyfriend. I don't want to get married. I don't want to do any of this, but I do need to meet people and I do need to build a friendship. And I do need to feel like if I call you because I'm around and if you have time, maybe we have a drink or maybe you're busy. And you can tell me you're busy or that you don't want to meet, but I can call you and say, hey, I'm close by. And I don't need to feel like I'm crossing your space, like I'm crossing something, a holy line there, it cannot be crossed. There was a question that I did want to answer. I don't want to leave it. It also connected to this bar that I made in Berlin. Because you asked me here in number eight, is it really possible to bring a bar in an art gallery? Uh, short answer, no. But for little moments, yes. What you can create is tiny little moments of suspension of what a gallery is. And you can bring these moments of extreme insanity and joy into an art space, definitely. But I needed free alcohol to do it. And not only, I mean, honestly, to just give alcohol for free. When I did it in Lisbon, it was quite easy because it was quickly understood. You just need to give alcohol. It's a different culture. But when I tried to do it in Berlin, it was such a long list of emails saying, no, you cannot give it for free. You need to charge it. I didn't have much money at the time. I was working as a dishwasher when I was doing this project here. I had some extra money, so I said, I don't care. I can pay it on my own. I don't need the gallery to pay for it because it's a state gallery. So if it's a problem for them, for budget reasons, whatever, I pay for the free beer. I want to invite the guests. And the reason that I want to give free beer is because in many occasions, me and many friends of mine don't have money for beer. And I don't want people to come to my bar and feel excluded because they cannot afford one drink. In a supermarket, these beers cost like less than one euro. It's not going to happen that I'm not going to give a free beer to people coming. After many debates, I was granted six cases of beer. They would pay for it, but I could not have any more beer than that. It happened. You can have this moment. You can create this situation that even for people who don't drink, I remember having a girl that was so excited and I was like, do you want a beer? And she's like, no, I don't drink. And I said, I had a little ticket, said, go get a lemonade at the canteen, you know? What was funny about that specific bar is that it went on, I think, for three months and the talks of the exhibition were held in the bar. And then we had some other events from an activist group who wanted to have it. So it did function and it had this bar moment. Then it went away, we dismantled it. Funny to find out that this gallery is called Gallery im Corner Park. It's a state gallery. It's in Neukölln. I came back like two years later and they have created a bar. They now have a bar that looks a bit like mine. Like they used a lot of the solutions that I use for the installation. They have mirrors. I think they put this big curtain to separate the space of the gallery from the space of the bar. So they created the environment. 
The only difference is that they sell cocktails for like 14 euros. <laughs> so it's not like mine, but they even have a smoke machine on the floor and little light system to do their concerts and their gigs. Actually, the bar they have now, I think it's called L'Orangerie, something like this. It looks a lot like my Golondrinas, I should say, but it's an actual bar. So I don't know. I was never told officially they were inspired by it, but when I came, I was like, hey. <laughs> When I did it in Lisbon, I have to acknowledge first the curator who accepted to do this crazy idea, Sergio Facenda Rodriguez, who was amazing and supported me a lot. And the gallery who took the project, Balcony Gallery, did me a really solid because if I had like a formal exhibition upstairs, like with actual prints and things, I could have a bar downstairs. And we did the entire bar. We painted all the basement of the gallery and the installation. I was so proud of it. And it was like, really, they put a lot of effort into it. When time came, I think when the owner of the gallery saw what I had made, he also became a bit concerned because he said, I hope I don't have police here. And they ask me if I'm running an illegal bar downstairs because I don't have a license. And it's full of crates of beer and lights and all this music. We had like an amazing opening and the opening was actually the biggest party. It was also a bit frustrating for them because I was much more interested on the opening night to create this moment of magic of the party and do less professional work as an artist, which is always going to be my big contention with the arts. Basically, what I did is I need to make this bar happen. Like it cannot only be an installation that people look from outside. So I quickly went down and started dancing and people started dancing and the party happened. Upstairs was an actual exhibition with a bunch of works that I have made also regarding dancing Lisbon. And it was more of a normal relation of looking at things whilst downstairs was really just inhabiting the space. And so I think you can, for tiny moments, definitely break the barriers of an art gallery and have like a real encounter within it. museums I spent some time there I like looking at things I don't have a problem with museums being just themselves and showing stuff because I like looking at stuff I also enjoy a lot when they break that part but I also distrust I would say because I think there is like a very quick like they co-opt even if you are doing something that is live a live art the happening it's about presence it's this moment and that's it the museum as its whole machinery has a very quick way in taking this and grabbing it in a tiny crystal box and putting names on top of it. It's always a struggle. I see many artists now struggle with that because everybody doing performance and doing this type of practices maybe has this awkward moment. It's like, okay, but we want it to be what it is. You know, we want it to be maybe not categorized as something, but it's always kind of defeating the purpose because the museum always have enough words to put on top of things. The institutions here are far more rigid 
I don't know because I never worked in a big institution in Madrid. So, I mean, I didn't have to deal with uh, putting something in Reina Sofia. I don't know, maybe they are very serious because they have a big collection. So I imagine they have like a very strict set of rules. In here, even if you go to a small place, you know, in the street here in Bedding, whatever, there's going to be a lot of rules because neighbors are snitches. And if you're making noise after them, and if you're misbehaving, they will call the police. When I was in Spain, I never really liked this model that was taking shape about this professional artist. I grew up in Guatemala in a moment where this was just maybe beginning to be a thing, but not really. So the scene I grew up in was very bohemian and it was like these crazy poets. They would invite me. I wasn't a poet, so I would do an installation. Basically, the way you gain respect in Guatemala is just by doing one project that is good and then you are invited for drinks. And that was validation. You come into the bar, people know who you are, you get invited to drinks and then you are an artist. That's it. <laughs> you know? It's very, I would say, more generous. There wasn't really a competition for institutional uh, validation because we didn't have any institutions. I think there were some collectors that some people knew, but there were really... Uh, I never knew them. I never knew rich people in Guatemala, so it was not my scene. But there was a lot of competition for ideas. It was really about having a good work. And Guatemalan criticism can be horrible. Like you have to come in and defend your work with a machete. So you have to really be sure what you're presenting. And there's not going to be a curator defending you. That's really you on your own and your own friends telling you what you did is shit. So you have to be very secure of what you're doing. And now it has changed. Why? Because it became very a part of a global art system. It's very professionalized or more professionalized than before. Before I moved to Spain, I already worked for an artist in Guatemala as an assistant. By the way, he was like the official villain of Guatemala because he was very rich and he was very narcissistic and he was mistreating people all over. And he was maybe the only person who I knew who did a dossier and had a curriculum and talked to curators in Mexico and New York and he had exhibitions in important places. Other than that, nobody really cared about that because nobody had that. We only had like two famous artists who were very punk artists who ended up winning the Golden Lion in Venice, but were still punks after that. It was not understood as it is here in Europe. When I moved to Spain, I quickly realized I didn't have a space. I didn't go to the university and I didn't have this type of education. I mean, I studied art in the Guatemalan school of arts, which is something I feel very proud of because the person who founded this school Rafael Rodriguez Padilla was an artist who was a very elegant artist, but he had a tragic ending because he killed himself. The reason he killed himself is because he was part of a plot to murder the current dictator. Within this plot in his studio, him being a very well-respected artist and sculptor, he helped make a bomb. I don't know how he did it. I don't know if the bomb, the surrounding of it was made of bronze. Because there were only two bronze studios in Guatemala. So they found him as the culprit because when they found the bomb, it was made of bronze and it was decorated 
with these leaves that were painted, I think with oil or something, in order to look like nature. So when the police came to his house, like, uh, sir, we need to speak, he said, okay, let me go get my coat. He went to his room and shot himself. And this was the person who founded my school. And so I'm always proud of that story because I think that this is what artists should do. Artists should always plot to murder a dictator. There is no other use of art, really, just to make the most beautiful bomb, you know, in order to end a tyrant. I come like this to Spain. I didn't go to school in Spain. Of course, I didn't know anybody. I had no connections, no nothing. I want to go to all the museums. I want to see. We used to romanticize a lot, right? There's all these scholarships and money, grants. I used to apply, you know, I arrived and I didn't know how to do anything. I didn't have any curriculum other than a couple of exhibitions in Guatemala and these projects that I've done with friends and things that I've done in the street that in an European context are completely meaningless because that just makes you a dilettante, a loser. And you're not taken seriously if you explain you did this huge sculptor and you threw it in the street and you know there was a performance around it it means nothing because it's not a museum it's not readable so of course i never got any grants and never got accepted to anything it went on like this for a long time i started becoming very frustrated because i was like why they have all this money every year they do all these calls and say send us the information and then never get anything so i said i distrust the system but then i found my friends and it was 2014 when I found my people in Madrid. And these people were very crazy people. Andres Montes from Espacio Naranjo, a crazy guy, Mexican, amazing, a real artist and a poet, you know? And so he had this place, this squat. I was looking for a place to do some art, to do some shots. Maybe I could rent it for two months because I didn't have much money, but I had saved some. And he said, mm, show me what you do. I don't have space now, but uh, send me your page or whatever. And I sent him and he was like calling me, oh, this is amazing. I don't have a space really, but you can come anytime. We can have a coffee. And he basically invited me and gave me a key that he never took away. And I always had a key to Espacio Naranjo. This was the place in Madrid where I developed most of my ideas and I developed them with my friends. So to me, Madrid was this freedom to do things because we basically burned fireworks inside this space. We did shows. I started working with smoke because they had a smoke machine for their parties. And so I started playing with it and then just thinking through smoke about horizons and how it was good to make them disappear. Because when you fill everything with smoke and you don't see anything in a tiny space and you can only see things when you come really, really close, it shows you something else. And it was all these experiments, these free experiments that we did that made sense to do with this group. And for me, that was the institution. What I saw at institutions then was less interesting. Because of course, even if I would have been called to present something like this in an institution, it would have been less fun. It's the moment of experimentation when you are really thinking with the work and thinking with your friends. I have this issue with authorship because I think it's very ego-driven somehow to say this is my work. Even if it is, like you came up with this idea, you went, you got it, you put it, you thought of it. But in reality, you always create things together with the people you are speaking with, with your friends, with your group. It's something that wouldn't happen if you didn't have the beer you share, you know, in the little asado, you're eating together, you're speaking, you're reading the books, and then these things start becoming something in your head. And then they start materializing with your friends. That to me was the most important thing.
talking about why refusal, why leaving arts, right? For me, when I decided to come to Berlin, I think I had like closed my time. A lot of things happened in Madrid, right? A lot of heartbreak. Also frustration that was mostly because of this uh, completely precarious life that had a limit. Friends help you a lot. I mean, they save your life, but at some point you need to organize your life and make it viable. And I realized that if I kept pursuing this sort of arts life in Madrid, I just couldn't really live for so long. Like the body has a limit. And I decided, you know what? It's fine. I'm happy with what I have, but actually I need to change everything. I need to find something else because Madrid is killing me. It's not a healthy life anymore. And I don't even mean, I mean, I partied and there's like a certain sociability in Madrid that is also quite draining sometimes, but it's also a matter of poverty. We have to talk about class. There's people who can live in a 24 seven party all their lives. I couldn't afford, I didn't have a house, you know, at some point. It could no longer be. So I said, okay, no, I need to have a job, which I always was working in Madrid, but it was like such precarious jobs. And I was invited by a friend to come here a winter in 2017. And I decided that I wanted to stay. Staying in Berlin for me was the opposite of what many people would think when they moved to, let's say, New York or Paris or London, you know, to make it. Berlin always seemed to me as a place of anonymity, it seemed to me as a place where you come to let things go. It didn't seem like a place where your dreams come through at all, but that a place where you actually come to really let go of that image of these desires that you have. And like you really go deep into what is it that life is somehow. It seemed like a very strong city in these terms. And this is why I decided to come here because I was, as you say, I was very curious. I was curious about this thing that is completely unformed because Berlin does not have a shape. It gives you absolute freedom to lose yourself or to do anything you want. It is not going to matter. Your visions of success or these ideas that I think are very toxic, these models of the successful artist that is always working and it's always super busy, but can afford to travel all the time to whatever art, social circumstance. That is the opposite of what I want. I want to contemplate. The more I know the art world from within, the more I know I don't belong in it. And the more I know that it will drive me away from art, the art that I want to make. I don't know if what I want to make has an audience or if it has a space in the system, but I know that I will do it regardless. And I can only protect it living the way I choose to live and not connected to the whims of the system, which I find very foreign to me. tough experience in Madrid before. So like my ego was very hurt. I always talk about how it's like hubris can also be a good thing. There's this issue about being egocentric or being full of hubris can always be punished by the gods. Like it's not a desirable thing. But I always say like without massive ego and delusion, sometimes one cannot do anything. I come from a a kind of a tough neighborhood in Guatemala. I don't come from money. So in order to get out of there, I had to have this massive delusion. Like I was capable of anything because otherwise I wouldn't have done anything. I just left by myself. So this ego that you have when you're like young, 
and you're strong and you can go days and days without sleeping and without a proper meal, the strength of your body that makes your body so powerful, even if you're just a small girl, <laughs> that ego, little by little time, shows you that everything has a limit. And I think Madrid to me was my sort of big school in which I had the worst it got for me, the worst situations I got into, the bigger my ego became. I don't know if it was an ego, but it was more like a ah, anger and fire and I have to keep going. And when I decided to leave Madrid was basically this humbling moment of, okay, <laughs> this is a massive city. It's a tiny city because it feels like a small town and it's very friendly and everything. But then it's just to say, no Madrid, you win. I go to Berlin now, get a job, wash some dishes, get a wage, take my time, eat three times a day, sleep hopefully, and just let go. I'm not gonna fight with Madrid anymore. You win, I lose the fight, but we are kind of even somehow. Berlin then for the past years, I arrived in 2019. It was very peaceful. I think it's a city that was very generous to me. It gave me what I needed. It gave me time. It gives me space a lot. And it's a place where I could feel very grateful and actually peaceful, I would say, very peaceful and quite happy to be. Then of course, you will always find a conflict, always. And as happy as I was these past few months, as you know very well, have been the complete destruction of the Berlin dream. I mean, many artists, many friends now are questioning what our futures are in this city, if our lives are still possible in this country as a whole. With the history it has, it's very complicated. But also, just as a matter of principle, I have to pay taxes here and these taxes go to support a genocidal regime and then they withdraw the money that is going to aid the people of Palestine. I cannot longer, I feel awful working and paying taxes in this country right now. I feel criminal doing it. And so this is the big question. the strike it's almost impossible to think of the possibility of a strike when we are all uh, freelancers as you said it it's so atomized but i don't believe in something i believe in the human strike i believe in taking yourself out of the situation you know i believe in stop collaborating as you said the strike of the audience is something super important where do you put your attention where you pay a ticket to go into and then as artists i think it's a very strong statement that artists decide to strike and take their work away and not participate in an exhibition especially in a system that is made for everyone to eat one another and to compete against one another i know many people look at the strike and just you know are rubbing their hands and like haha less competition whatever but as a gesture, it's taking back the power of the artists that we have given away to institutions and to workers, managers of art and their bullshit. 
And I think it's an amazing, an amazing gesture. I mean, the strike a hundred percent, but anyway, it's kind of irrelevant because I don't make a living necessarily from the system. So. The only thing we can do here as bad immigrants who don't speak the language is just contemplate the collapse. There was this quote, I don't want to misquote it. Who was it? I think Stikun wrote this, I don't remember which book, maybe The Coming Insurrection, when it said capitalism won over all the other economic systems because it offered something sexier, more interesting, more exciting than, let's say, communism. But there is only one thing that is more exciting than capitalism. And that is its destruction. And I think what we are approaching now, which makes me very excited, is the erotic of the destruction of the system. I mean, I'm so for it. I don't know what will come out of it. I don't know what we will build, but I want to be there for the fall. I want to see this system of art, which I'm very critical of. I want to see it collapse. I think what they have done with all this art, that is identity politics that they were doing, which I have a lot of commentary about it. I have a lot of experiences that went in the system. As Germans always trying to define an identity and judging whether you as a human are exotic enough for them to give you funding. They've been calling people from everywhere. Not only Americans, you have Africans, Asians, Latin Americans being called by these programs of scholarships. They're being called here to live here and work here because the problem that Germany has is that for decades it has not produced that many interesting things. The era of the big thinkers is gone. It collapsed in front of France and like Adorno is dead. They were Jewish and then they eventually died. Now you don't have a German philosopher. The people who are important in thought, they're like foreigners. And the artists here, the scene, I could be very critical of many things, but they need these foreigners to be here to bring some type of interest. And I could actually even be critical in the way in which histories of trauma and colonization have been turned into content for their consumption because they always want to control these narratives and end up being the good guys. And now it becomes problematic because now it turns out that these traumatized people that they were giving money to so they could tell their trauma hold a political position that they cannot possibly understand, which is a position that is the position of decolonization. It's a position for freedom and dignity of the people of Palestine. And so all of the sudden, the, the colonials who were getting all this space and attention, all of the sudden become the enemies of the state. I would have not have expected that, but I welcome the situation. And I think what we are looking at is like a, an international Germany, basically just embarrassing itself on a global scale. And I'm here for it. I will collaborate with this demise as much as I can. I'm sorry. They have behaved in such a horrible way against artists and against Palestine in a way that is unforgivable. What this country is doing, supporting the genocide of Palestine is unforgivable. Forever, we will remember how they behaved. To me, Bad Bunny is dead because Years ago, when he started, he was very political and it was very meaningful for the people of Latin America that he would be taking political stance and he would be participating in the demos 
the fact that he was so proud to be Puerto Rican and he was speaking Spanish, it meant so much for us. I don't know what type of black magic this kid is into because he has started dating a Kardashian and is completely gone. Like, he is like zero. You cannot hear any of these people who would have, in a different time, be political, say anything. And that makes you wonder about all this culture of Illuminati they have in the music industry that they say is like, what do you sell to come in? that you just lost your voice. You have millions of followers and you just disappeared. There's something interesting happening because even though the people who are famous are not saying anything, you can go online and see a lot of people. It's a massive thing. This realization, this uh, complete and global realization of these structures of power that are very rotten inside. And I also have friends who are on Insta who are very famous and very political sometimes. I have this artist friend who also has like maybe 50,000 followers, if not more, and a long career, like he would lose nothing basically for saying something. And he's always making commentary. He's always making political commentary about Ukraine, about all the injustices in the world. He's very left wing and all of a sudden he's disappeared. And so you think, what is it about this issue that makes it impossible for you to say something? We know that the war in Ukraine, it's awful and we can be very much against it, but we know it was a situation that was created by the West that was completely avoidable and could have ended very quickly. And yet it was kept for political reasons. What we look at in Palestine is just like the extreme violence of a regime that is also the West. This is our responsibility. Now it's just tyranny. Everything is naked. All masks are off. Even during the Ukraine invasion, it was such a performative thing on the side of the Western countries. It was super performative. Berlin was full of Ukraine flags. That's great. It's a country that's being attacked, but you don't really believe that these Western countries actually care about the lives of people that they just put at risk. So now you can see the difference that you see this most clear genocide happening. They act like it's not happening, which is such a violent thing. I go back to the genocide in Guatemala. Israel was quite involved in that as well, because they gave a lot of weapons and training and a lot of counterinsurgency strategies. And actually, it was so much so that the whole thing was called the Palestinization of Guatemala. And they called on Israel to help with this because they knew how to deal with an internal enemy. In Guatemala was the indigenous population and of course, so was in Palestine, right? When I think about it, it's like this Guatemalan genocide. I knew it was happening. I was a kid. I mean, I knew about the conflict when I was a kid because, but people pretend it wasn't happening and it was not happening in front of everybody, even though everybody lost somebody. There were so many disappearances from the city as well, not just the massacres in the towns. It was not only that, but people still pretended it wasn't happening. People went on with their lives. There were tourists traveling in Guatemala at the time near the places where the massacres were taking place and life just went on. And I feel that the reason why we are reacting in such a strong way is that it's generations and generations of genocides. It's a never ending war. And this is maybe the generation that really says that's it. I hope so. I don't know. I hope we are. One always hopes to be a less mediocre generation. I always felt the millennials were such a mediocre generation. <laughs>
but I really hope that this kind of anti-war movement that is growing manages not only to stop this genocide, but to restore justice. Promise No Promises is a podcast series produced by the Center for Gender and Equality, a research project of the Institute Art, Gender, Nature at the Basel Academy of Art and Design, FHNW, conceived as a think tank tasked to assess, develop, and propose new social languages and methods to understand the role of gender in the arts, culture, science, and technology, as well as in all knowledge areas that are interconnected with the field of culture today. If you're interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please visit dertank.ch or subscribe to our newsletter at info.iagn.hgk at fhnw.ch. That's info.iagn.hgk at fhnw.ch. Recording and editing, Mara Saravia and Sonia Fernandez-Pan. Final editing and voiceover, Elena Cesar. Music, S. McAvoy. Research team, Tabia Rothfuchs and Emily Harris. Press and communication, Anna Franke. Technical support, Esther Hunziger and Karin Bohrer. Copyright Institute Art, Gender, Nature, HGK Basel, FHNW 2024.